And then starting and finishing Esther chapter 3. But uh, before we start with our material, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we recognize that you are king over all. You're king because you have created us. You have created our world. You've created this entire universe, Lord. You are a sovereign God who controls everything, who provides for all of his creation, who provides specifically for his people, for his covenant people, Lord. We're thankful that you are a good God whose mercy endures forever. Lord, I pray as we we study this, this day, you open our eyes to the truths that you've given us in Scripture, and that we are all blessed in this time. We ask your blessing upon it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So let's review uh, exactly what we've got up until this point. Remember last week we were introduced to uh, our two main characters, Mordecai and Esther. Specifically remember that uh, Mordecai is introduced as son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Remember the author is making an explicit connection to Saul right here, and we're going to talk today about why that is important. Before that... uh, King Ahasuerus or Xerxes has decided that he has been a bachelor long enough. It has been five years since Vashti's been banished. And so he goes to some of his young men and they recommend that he has a royal beauty pageant to choose his next queen. And Esther, this uh, Jewish orphan, is now the queen of the biggest empire in the world at the time. And so we've seen how God in his, his unmentioned divine providence, that's our theme as we're reading through the book, divine providence, even though it goes unmentioned, it's already, he's already strung together a series of unexplained, we're going to call them coincidences or random events because we don't have a, a word that really better describes it, but we know that they're not true coincidences or chance happenings. We know God is providing for his people. He has, there are a series of these up to this point. Queen Vashti, without reason, has refused to come before the king of the most powerful empire of the world. The king, in a compulsive way, banishes her. He, three years later, on a whim, decides that he needs a new queen and chooses one in a very unorthodox way for the Persian nobility. Esther, this Jewish orphan who happens to be one of the young virgins taken to compete in this royal beauty pageant, she, in the most improbable way, pleases the king above all others and is now the queen of Persia. So, as we read today, we're going to see even more strange coincidences that are all fulfilling the same purpose. The Messiah still has to come from the line of David. He still has to come from the tribe of Judah. And for that to happen, the Jews are still going to need to be saved from Haman's plot that we'll read about today. So, as we read our text, let's keep in mind the providence of our good God as we read. So, we're going to start in Esther Chapter 2, verse 19, and finish through chapter 3. Esther chapter 2, 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. 
And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of King. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, to advance him, and advanced him and set, and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, so as, they made, so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews and the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they will be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, so that they may put it into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from, the, from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and the governors all over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. The letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. And one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by the order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So back at the close of chapter 2, when Mordecai discovers this plot of these eunuchs, we're, giving, we're given another instance of a chance happening that's going to be crucial to the rest of the narrative. It's going to play out later, as most of you already know. Mordecai, in some seemingly random way, I say seemingly random, comes to the knowledge that two of the king's eunuchs are planning to murder the king. We don't know exactly, but maybe Mordecai was just at the right place at the right time in the king's gate, and he overheard these two men planning the attack. We don't know. Maybe he, someone else on the inside of the planned attack came to Mordecai and told him, 
Mordecai seems to maybe have some sort of at least semi-prominent position to be at the king's gate anyway. We don't know. But we do know that Mordecai should not have been privy to this information. He then goes and relays this message to Esther, who relays it to the king. And Esther, we're told, makes sure that the, to mention that Mordecai is the source of the information. So King Ahasuerus or Xerxes, he is to know that Mordecai is the one who is really relaying this info. He's the one that's being loyal to the crown right now. And this is recorded in the Chronicles of the King, which is a very crucial detail that we're going to encounter in later chapters. And one curious thing, though, is that Herodotus actually reports that acts of loyalty were usually immediately rewarded by and very handsomely rewarded by all the Persian kings. If you displayed an act of loyalty like this, you were probably given a, a prominent position in the royal court, um, position of power, uh, similar to what we're going to see that Haman actually gets. But as of right now, Mordecai seems to have been overlooked. We're not told that he is promoted in any way even though this, this would have been pretty rare for, for the Persian court, at least according to Herodotus. And so this is Mordecai's overlooked for his promotion. And this is very interesting because in the very next verse, the first verse of chapter 3, it says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. And the author is very intentional right here in the way that we're introduced to our antagonist in the story, Haman. Haman the Agagite. This man has received the promotion that we were expecting Mordecai to receive after Mordecai has reported uh, the plot against the king and displayed his loyalty to the crown. So the author is deliberately setting the reader up to know that this person, this son of Agag, is an enemy of the Jews. He's going to explicitly refer to him as an enemy of the Jews later on in the chapter in verse 10 the enemy of the Jews. But before that, he's already setting up us readers to, to make this connection. The Malachites. The Amalekites were a group of nomadic people that lived south of Israel, and they would periodically come in and raid the, raid the nation of Israel. Agag was one of their kings. So we're being set up here. Back over in 1 Samuel chapter 15... I'm going to go there and read verses 1 through 9 and then skip down to 32 and 33. So 1 Samuel 15, verses 1 through 9. So Saul is king here, obviously. Verses 1 through 9 of 1 Samuel 15. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I've noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to the people of Israel when they came up out of, the, out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. 
But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. And so uh, in the next few verses, Samuel comes and he pronounces judgment upon Saul because Saul was supposed to destroy absolutely everything of the Amalekites. Saul did not do so. So the throne is going to be ripped away from Saul. But back before that happens, in verses 32 and 33 of the same chapter, it says, Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag says, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your word has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag into pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. So we see here the explicit connection back to Agag. He was an enemy of Saul. He was an enemy of Israel. But it actually goes back even further than that. Samuel makes an allusion to that in the first chapter, in the first couple of verses of chapter 15. But even further back, back in Exodus chapter 17, Exodus chapter 17, we are told, Exodus 17, Verses 8 through 16. So remember, this is before Israel has made it to to Mount Sinai. They are still on their journey from Egypt. And in verse 8, it says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand grew weary, and they, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword." Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in, the, in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory, of, the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, Jehovah Nissi, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So here we have a, a promise that Israel will always be at war with Amalek. And that's what we have a connection to here. Amalek was actually the first nation to attack the new nation of Israel. Israel comes up from Egypt as a new nation of all the hundreds of thousands of people. They're on the way to Sinai. And Amalek is the first ones to attack them. And as a result, God promises a forever war between himself and Amalek. And this is obviously now spilling over into the time frame of our study. Remember, we're hundreds of years later. And Israel is still at war with Amalek. And this is what the author is is pointing out. Now, we don't actually know if if Haman was a direct descendant of Agag. It's quite possible he was. Or actually, we don't even know if he was an an Amalekite. Because there's actually some some other sources that are uh, outside of the Bible, extra-biblical sources, that show by the time of the writing of Esther, so the 400s B.C., Actually, most of the enemies of the Jews were called Agagites. Uh, some, uh, even 
after the Old Testament is, is completed and some of the intertestamental period, they call some of the Romans Agagites, actually. So this is kind of a, a general term for someone that's an enemy of the Jews. So it's, it's possible that Haman, Haman was actually a, a Persian that you know, was being called an, an Agagite. But, you know, I, I tend to lean the other way because it refers to him as a, a son of, I'm sorry, referring to um, Saul as a son of Kish. So I, I tend to lean that, that Haman was actually a, an Amalekite in some way. Uh, even Jewish tradition itself, uh, the rabbinic tradition, refers to Haman as a direct descendant of Agag. And uh, like I said, that's kind of the way that I tend to lean, but, I'm, you know, can't be firm on that. The main point being is that this character in the narrative is being introduced as an enemy of the Jews. So already, even before we've got his plot pronounced, he's already an enemy of the Jews. And just as a little bit of a theological side note, God's people, God's people, God's Israel, was never meant to be a single ethnic group. just want to point that out right now. I think we're probably all aware of this, but just to explicitly state it, the Israelite ethnicity was not the Old Testament church. God's people, God's true Israel, was and always has been those who respond to God's covenant and faith. There are many examples in biblical history of reprobate Israelites and even some faithful Gentiles. And a very good you know, illustration of this, even given very early on in the, in the Pentateuch, is when the Israelites are ready to go take the promised land away from the Canaanites. Ethnic Israel is God's chosen people, right, just because of their ethnicity? Not exactly. Almost immediately we have a Canaanite proving that she is a part of God's people, Rahab. And then almost immediately after that, we have an Israelite being cut off from God's people, Achan. So being a member of God's people never had an ethnic requirement. It didn't then, doesn't today. So even though Haman is not an, an Israelite by ethnicity, you know, anyone that responds to God's covenant by faith is a member of God's Israel, God's church. Just wanted to, to point that out first of all. Nevertheless, it is obvious here that Haman is not a member of God's covenant. He is an enemy of God's people, and that's the way he is introduced. He goes. He has received a promotion in the court, exactly the place where we would expect to find that Mordecai is to going to receive a promotion. Mordecai then refuses to bow to this court official, not only once refusing to bow, but day after day after day, Mordecai refuses to bow. We are not given the reason why Mordecai does this, because it, it's not sinful, it never was sinful for one to bow to one's civil superior, assuming that the bowing wasn't offering worship to that person, obviously. In fact, many Jews actually did this in Persia for, for quite some time before this. And it, it, it even seems that Mordecai's refusal was specific only to Haman. That's kind of what the text seems to indicate here. Maybe, maybe Mordecai was refusing to bow to an Amalekite. It's possible. Maybe Haman had indicated, already indicated some sort of evil towards the Jews. That also seems possible. We don't know. In any case, there, there at least seems to be some small bit of pride from, in Mordecai in refusing to bow. Um, this, at the very least, I would say was unwise, for it eventually puts all the Jews at risk of annihilation because Mordecai refuses to, to bow and pay homage to Haman. Um, the, the Jews maintain that, that Haman um, was requiring them to bow as an act of worship, 
which obviously would have been sinful and Mordecai would have been justified. We aren't, we aren't told that in the text, so we don't exactly know. Some people even say that Haman had some sort of idol you know, some sort, somewhere on his person. Mordecai refused to bow to that. We don't know. But Mordecai does refuse to bow, and this obviously makes Haman furious. And so at this point, remember, we actually, there's quite been a few years that have passed between the events of, of chapter 2 and the events of chapter 3. We don't know when the events of chapter 2, uh, verses 19 through 23 occur. So when Mordecai discovers the plot, we don't know exactly when that happens. Uh, it looks like it probably happens pretty soon after Esther's chosen queen. We don't know exactly. But actually, five years have passed between when Esther's chosen queen and when these, Haman's plot is discovered, whenever he uh, starts to manipulate the king to agree to his evil plan. First of all, he brings the accusation to Xerxes that there is a certain group of people who do not obey the laws of the king. In fact, the only thing that we know is that there's only one individual, Mordecai, who is refusing one specific law to bow to Haman. In any case, Haman is going to first cast the Jews as rebels who need to be purged from the empire. That's the first thing he brings towards the king. Then he goes and he appeals to the king's need to refill the treasury. Now, remember we talked about Xerxes' disastrous wars with Greece. Um, even before Esther's chosen queen, he's had these disastrous wars with Greece. The treasury has been completely depleted from Persia just about. All the lavishness that we saw in chapter 1 is most likely not occurring now. So Haman comes in and says, I'm going to offer you 10,000 talents of silver if you let me do this. And so 10,000 talents of silver is an extraordinary large sum. Actually, Herodotus uh, writes in his chronicles that Xerxes' father, Darius, his, the annual revenue under Darius was about 15,000 talents. So this is two-thirds of the revenue that, that would have been a yearly, an expected yearly uh, taxation revenue in the, in, the, in the kingdom. So this was an incredibly large sum, obviously, two-thirds of the annual revenue. Haman obviously was planning on refilling his pockets and, and further filling the pockets of the king after the Jews were killed and all their possessions were plundered. We're told that he was planning on not just killing them, but plundering them. So in his mind, this made sense. I'm going to pay this amount. I'm probably going to even make some money off this and refill some of the, the treasuries of Persia whenever I kill all these people and then take all their money after they're dead. And the king, without even much deliberation at all, agrees doesn't really seem to think about this very much. This seems to be his usual pattern. We saw this whenever he came with his, his advisors in the first chapter, whenever the, the young men told him to choose a queen in this strange way. He doesn't really seem to even give this a whole lot of thought. The same way with here, whenever he's uh, pre uh, presented with a genocide of a group of people. Doesn't give it a, a second thought, and then gives his signet ring to Haman to do as he pleases. And then we go on to read that to determine the day of attack, Haman cast pure or poor or lots. We hear a lot about lots in the, in the Old Testament especially, and even some in the New Testament, whenever they're, they're choosing the, uh, those to, the one to replace Judas, the apostle to replace Judas. And so Haman here is casting, casting lots, him and his advisors. The lot falls for the 12th month Adar, 
they start they casting the lots in the first month, uh, Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus. So that's where we're we're getting the information that this is five years after Esther's chosen queen. And so the lot falls for the twelfth month of Adar. Happens to be a full eleven months from when the lots are cast. They're casting them in the first month, and they're casting them to see when to plan the attack. Eleven months later. And this is, I think, another explicit episode of divine providence. The Jews have a full 11 months to either prepare for this attack or to somehow get the king to revoke his edict. So we've got God orchestrating these lots. Obviously, lots or indicate some sort of divine providence here. Word is then sent out to the entire kingdom. Now, remember, this is... The kingdom includes the Jews that are back in the promised land at this point. Word is sent out to even them in the promised land that 11 months from now, the citizens of Persia are going to take up arms against the Jews and completely annihilate all of them. Even more sad for the Jewish people is that most likely most of them heard this edict first pronounced on Passover. This Passover occurred in the first month of Nisan, the 15th of the month, the 14th, I don't remember now, 15th of the month of Nisan, 14th, 14th of the month of Nisan is when Passover was celebrated. And so most likely after, uh, as a side note, the Persians actually had a really good postal system wherever they they sent out uh, something similar to what we had in the Pony Express, a very good system for distributing news across the empire. And so a lot of these Jews would have been hearing this news whenever they were celebrating Passover turning this just joyous celebration of deliverance into a period of sorrow and very deep mourning for these people. So that's where we're at in our, our narrative. And I wanted to move along to some, some points of application for God's people today. God's providence over the lot, God's providence through life's injustices, and then how the, the powers of the world are against God's people. First is God's providence over the lot. The lot is a direct, explicit, and very obvious example of divine providence. And while, yes, uh, in some sense, God is in control over every game of Yahtzee, and even those games of, of craps in the casinos, that's, that's really not the point. He's even controlling all of that. There's no such thing as luck. Lots illustrate that there are no coincidences in our world. None. No chance happenings. No randomness. Like I told you on the first day, I'm a statistician. We're supposed to be experts in randomness, but there is no, no true randomness. So uh, that flies in the face of a lot of what a lot of people think in my profession. We perceive randomness and, and probabilities, but that's only because we're finite creatures who don't have exhaustive knowledge. God's omniscience is directly tied to his providence. He knows all things. So he is able to provide all things. There is no randomness in God. Lots are very prevalent in Scripture. We're going to look at two examples of those. One obvious one that you may have already thought of is Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. I'm not going to turn there. I'm just going to, just going to quote it. Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Now you get more explicit than that right there. That's... The word of God directly. No interpretation needed. Even, even the date of the planned attack, was, it wasn't given by Haman. It wasn't given by Haman's gods. It was determined by Yahweh. The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. And then in Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6, David writes this. 
The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David here is making a reference to another instant of lot casting. The, the lot, you hold my lot. The lines fall, have fallen for me in pleasant places. Joshua. Joshua divides up the conquered land of Canaan by casting lots to know how to dis- distribute the land to the tribes, each receiving their own inheritance. David knows that whatever his lot, his inheritance holds true because of the one actually giving the inheritance, the one who controls the lot, the one who is not surprised by the lot. Another instance of, of, of lots that we can kind of recall in our minds is if you think about the first verse of the Horatio Spafford hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot that has taught me to say, it is well with my soul. I'm, I'm sure you've all heard this story before, and uh, I'll try to tell it without te- tearing up. Whenever Horatio Spafford wrote this song, before that, Spafford was this, this wealthy businessman in Chicago, and um, he had some connections back to, to England. And so the, him, him and his family were going to sail over to England and listen to his friend uh, D.L. Moody preach over there. And so some late business uh, required him to stay in Chicago, but his wife and his three daughters made the trip over to England. And there, they, where there, their ship ran into a, an iron-sided ship, and their ship sank. Uh, he lost all three of his daughters. His wife managed to survive and make it to England. She sent him a telegram back, um, said something like, survived alone, or something like that. And so Spafford, he eventually sails over to England and writes this song on the way. And so at the very spot where his, his girls have drowned, he writes that, uh, whatever my lot... That has taught me to say it is well with my soul. Um, very deep and, and powerful hymn there. So Spafford knew it. David knew it. Um, the Solomon knows it when he's writing Proverbs. The Lord controls the lot. Whatever our situation, we have a beautiful inheritance. Moving on to our, our next point, God's providence through life's injustices. Mordecai probably expected a promotion for his loyalty to the king. Instead, this evil man, Haman, is promoted to a much higher place than he is. Vashti is banished for simply refusing to come before the king. Esther was taken captive, was taken captive to be taken into the bed of this pagan king. But without each of these things taking place, Esther and Mordecai would not have been in the place as agents of deliverance for God's people. They can only see their present circumstances, not, was, not what lies ahead in the plan of, plan of Yahweh. They had both come to this place through injustice and wickedness of others, and yet they still had to act. These events remind us that in our circumstances, even if unjustly thrust upon us by other people or from our own flawed decision-making, our circumstances of each and every present moment are put in place for a divinely directed purpose. God, he will work for his people, work through his people, and he's going to marvelously marvelously provide for them in his own good time. That is something that the people of God need to forever be recognizing, is that despite our own circumstances, whether or not they're due to our own making or not, God is a good God. God will provide for us, especially in eternity. Which brings us to the last point. The powers of this world are against God's people. 
The world is a dangerous place, at least physically, for the people of God. The history books are rife with examples of similar to what we read here. The rulers of this world are bent on destroying the church. It was true in 5th century B.C. in Persia. It was true in the early church. It's still true today. Satan himself stands against us and demands that we worship him. Revelation 13. Revelation 13, verses 5 through 8. Revelation 13, verse 5. And the beast... Satan was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given, given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it everyone whose name had, has not been written before the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. In the same way that even though Satan channeled his unrighteous wrath against human agents when he used them to nail Jesus to the cross, human agents are working towards the ultimate end of history and the return of our Savior. It's a great, great comfort to us that even evil forces are going to bring ultimate good. God's absolute sovereignty is displayed magnificently in that worldly and evil powers are constrained by God's eternal decree. Christians are persecuted all over the world today. And although we haven't really known true physical persecution in America, we're not promised that we won't and likely will. Here, those next few verses of Revelation 13 give Christians everywhere a very somber exhortation. Verses 9 and 10, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Very sobering, very somber message. A call for endurance and faith of the saints, even when faced with death. But, but our hopes are not in the security of being safe from all physical harm. God delivers the Jews in Esther from their physical harm. We're not promised that. We have a much longer view, an eternally longer view. We are eternally safe in Christ, even though the spiritual beasts and the beasts of this world would seek to destroy body and soul. We can then agree with David in Psalm 16 that we do indeed have a beautiful inheritance in Christ. And we look forward to the day described in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. Revelation 21, 1 through 7. This is what we look forward to, saints. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with him as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. 
And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down for those who are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is what we look forward to, saints. This is what we look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth. So whenever we encounter the powers of this world, let's keep our mind focused that we have a long view, not a short view of history. Remember remember why we're here today? We're here to worship the one who in verse 6 is seated on the throne. So as we leave here, let's prepare to go worship our king.